Uh, today we're going to talk about that Jesus has been raised and he has been seen. Uh, the, the bedrock truth of things that even historians would agree on is that, is that Jesus was a real person. <laughs> he really existed. And that he was actually crucified on a cross, like we believe, by Pontius Pilate. And they put above his head, Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, he was buried. And so Paul, in writing this, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he's repeating. Uh, Paul's writings are some of the earliest writings in the New Testament. They precede the Gospels by about 10 years. So Paul is writing this you know, about 10 years, 10, 15 years after the resurrection of Christ. So he's writing this, and this is, this is what he's writing here. This is something that he has received. In other words, he's been given this by the apostles. This is their, this is like, in a sense, the apostles' doctrinal statement. Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this, this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead was unparalleled. It, was, it, you know, it wasn't like you always heard about gods or so-called gods being raised from the dead. There were gods who, the, there were Greek gods and Roman gods that descended into Hades at diff, different times. Uh, but it wasn't, in a sense, a man who died and, and comes back. So this claim that Jesus, these claims of Jesus were, were in, innovative. They were unparalleled. There was, it, it, was, it was not common. First, this, the, the positive in, interpretation of a crucified Messiah. I mean, there were a lot of false messiahs we talked about last week. There were a lot of false messiahs that had a lot of followers. A lot, sometimes they had more followers than Jesus. But the difference was that when they died, their followers dispersed. Because when they died, they were dead. <laughs> but Jesus... <laughs> change that because when Jesus died he wasn't dead he came back from the dead and so they 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 looked at what had happened this this crucified messiah because a dead messiah is not a messiah but so what does this crucified messiah mean and so they begin to understand what the scripture said that the scripture said that the that this messiah was going to suffer he was going to accomplish something Jesus death accomplish something for our sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 36. This is Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is, is 50 days after the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, actually. 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And then it, it's, it's only 10 days after Jesus' ascension. So Jesus was Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. He ascended to the Father. Then we have the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and he says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So they had a, a positive interpretation of the crucified Messiah. In other words, he, he, he didn't just die. When he died, he accomplished something. And what he accomplished was that he died for our sins. He died to bring us into the family of God. Secondly, what was innovative was this 
two-stage resurrection. Jesus was raised now, and there is still a resurrection to come. There's, there's the resurrection that Jesus did. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first of the resurrection. But he is the precedent. He is the one who's going to lead the way for us to be resurrected. So Jesus was resurrected so that we can be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, 6, 14. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise, him, raise us up through his power. So the resurrection didn't just have an effect on Jesus. It's going to have an effect on us. And then the third, which... Actually, Peter has already kind of reiterated this, on, reiterated this on the day of Pentecost. This crucified Messiah claimed to be God, even Lord of the world. It wasn't that he was just a Messiah, because they didn't see the Messiah as, as God. They just saw the Messiah as a godly figure, like David, that was going to come and crush the Romans. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us, Paul says, there is but one God. Now, that, that is the Shema. That's, the, that's, that's how, what the Jews would say. The Lord our God is one, is one Lord. So Paul has taken the Shema, and he has added Jesus into it. So listen, it says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. We exist for God. We exist through Jesus. So Paul is, has taken the Shema, this, the Lord our God is one Lord, and he's, and he's added Jesus in as the Lord that's a part of the Godhead. This was innovative. I mean, so these three innovations were unheard of. It wasn't like, like and it wasn't like it evolved over over hundreds of years. It wasn't like Paul wrote it and came up with it. It's like within 10 days of the ascension, Peter is essentially preaching on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is God. Jesus died on purpose. And it meant something. And, you know, this, inno this innovation came through fishermen and tax collectors it actually came by the power of the Holy Spirit teaching them about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is a good list, and what, what Paul is trying to show here, he's trying to show us a convincing list that Jesus was raised from the dead. So he's saying, you know, there are people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. He's even including himself in the list. It's a good list, but you, when this isn't even a complete list. This doesn't have everyone that saw the resurrected Christ. Because before he appeared to Cephas, Simon Peter, Cephas, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome uh, 
bought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early in the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So I don't know if you remember the story, but, but we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had anointed Jesus before his burial with about 100 pounds of spices. We also know, you can read in the story, that, that Mary and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus were looking on. So we can only assume that they watched the men do it and they decided we better go and do it right. <laughs> okay, we saw how, you know, they made a noble attempt, but, you know, we, we're, yeah, they missed a spot. We're going to have to go fix it. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? So I mean, I'm sure you've all seen pictures. Uh, the tomb was a cave that was carved out of the rock, or it was an existing cave that they added onto. And the entrance to the cave would not have been large. It would have been, it would have been maybe three or four feet. If you read the story of where Peter ran to the tomb, it says, he, and bending down, he went in. So it would have been short. So you would have had the cave, a small entrance. Then you would have this round stone that's four to six feet in diameter that would have weighed two to 4,000 pounds. You would have been in a groove, and then they would build a wall up in front of that to keep that stone from falling. So they could roll the stone in place possibly down an incline, then put a, a wedge behind it to hold it in place because they were going to reuse that tomb. The purpose of tombs in first century Jerusalem was that they, they would put a body in the tomb that the body would decompose and dry out, and then they would, after a year or so, they would take the bones of that body and put them in a bone box, an ossuary, and put them in a in a hole in the wall, in a, in a carved out place in the wall, so that they could reuse that tomb. It could be a family tomb for more than just, more than just one person. So they, they got there, and so they're concerned, how are they, they going to roll the stone away? Now, the stone was made to be rolled away, was, but it wasn't easy to roll away. It, it wasn't something that a couple of women would probably be able to do, or maybe even a couple of men. It would have been a difficult task. And they're, they're concerned about, am I going to be able to, to <laughs> are we going to be able to get into the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Now, I, what's interesting about this is that, that Jesus didn't need to roll the stone away. Because Jesus could go through walls. <laughs> The resurrected Christ went through walls. He didn't need to roll the stone away. So why did he roll the stone away? So that we could see that he was risen. You know, sometimes God accommodates us. He, God didn't, Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away, but, but he wanted to accommodate. He wanted, he wanted the disciples to see what had happened, that his body wasn't there. Uh, looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled away, although it was extremely large, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here, 
Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they, had, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he had first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country, the road to Emmaus. They went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. So we see in the in the Gospels, the account of Mary Magdalene being the first to see Jesus is recorded in three of the Gospels, but Paul didn't include her in this list. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. One reason, possibly, is that uh, they considered in that day women to be too hysterical to give good witness accounts. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that that's what they said in the day. Uh, they were not, so they were not considered dependable witnesses. They would not allow a woman to testify in court about an event. But, you know, if it, women, if it makes you feel that better, they also did not believe the two men from the road to Emmaus. And that was two witnesses. And they rejected that. Yeah. So Mary was the first to hear and give testimony that she had seen the risen Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And we don't have the, really a direct record of when he appeared to Cephas. Luke 24, 33 says, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathering together the eleven. And those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen. Now, this is actually the, the guys that were on the road to Emmaus. And has appeared to Simon. Why? Well, the Lord's making a special, special effort to reach out to Peter because he has denied the Lord. Now, they've all denied the Lord. <laughs> and they've all run away. But Peter was particularly insistent that he wouldn't. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, this is an interesting text when you think about this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So the Lord says to Peter, hey, uh, just want you to know, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat. I said, okay. What? What'd you say? <laughs> go for it. Right? Wait. So what Jesus is saying to him, hey, Peter, I want you to recognize, temptation is coming. 
and you're not ready. Difficulty is coming, and you need to get ready. You've been thinking about it. He's saying, listen, you've been living in a bubble protected by my presence, and things are going to change rapidly. I'm not going to be with you physically. So what happened with Peter is that he was so self-sufficient. Lord, I will never leave you. And often the Lord will allow the enemy to show us, reveal the areas in our life where we are self-sufficient and weak. The areas where we think we're strong, but we're not. And then what he also shows us is that even though Peter failed, that failure isn't final. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, this is one of the lessons that Peter learned. Listen to this. God is opposed to the proud, <laughs> but gives grace to the humble. He learned it the hard way. And then he appeared to the twelve. John chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. So he didn't need a door. <laughs> and said to them, peace be with you. Which, you know, I think would have been fun to just say, boo, you know, but he didn't do that. <laughs> and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Now Thomas wasn't in this group. So when they told Thomas, Thomas said, I don't believe it. This, is a, this was a not very believing bunch, was it? He said, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my hands in his nail prints and in his, in his hands in his side. In John chapter 20, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see, who did not see, and yet believe. That's us. Then Jesus also appears to the twelve at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. Peter gets up one day and says, I'm going fishing. He's seen the risen Lord. He's still not sure what's going on. He's still kind of overcome by his failure. He's disappointed in himself. He doesn't understand really what the directions are and what they're going to do. Uh, he says, I'm going fishing. And every, all the other guys say, well, we're going with you. So they're fishing, and they fish, and they don't catch anything. Is it sounding familiar to when they were called to be disciples? They fished, and they didn't catch anything. And they see a figure on the shore, and he asks the question that no fisherman that hasn't caught a fish wants to be asked. <laughs> Catch anything? And they said, no. 
And Jesus says, well, try that old put the net on the other side trick. And they do. And they start bringing in, again, a haul of fish. And John, writing in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he liked to rub it in. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. So Peter, in just put on his outer garments because he had stripped down for fishing, and, it's, and he jumped into the sea. And he swam to be with Jesus. When he got there, Jesus was cooking breakfast. That's pretty cool. Jesus had already caught some fish. He said, you don't have fish, but I do. And he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, yes, I love you. And he says, tend my lambs. And then he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. He asked him again. Now, how many times did he deny the Lord? Three times? So maybe he's uh, just getting to remember how easy it is to deny the Lord. Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know all things. Apparently, you knew I was going to deny you before I denied you. You are smarter than me, God. You ever come to that realization that God knows more than you do and that you've he knows all things. And he says, tend my sheep. See, the Lord, it did, I think it's just interesting that the Lord made a special effort to help Peter be restored after his failure. After him messing up, being so self-confident, I'll never deny you, I'm willing to die for you. And, and he really acted like he was. I mean, you think about it, he took out a sword and cut off the high priest's ear. I mean, the servant of the high priest's ear. I mean, he was ready to go to battle. He was, he was, he was brave in the moment. And then yet, when he was around the fire and a, a young lady challenged him and said, aren't you one of those Christ followers? He eventually cursed and said, no, no. Three times. So the Lord is willing I just love the way that the Lord goes out of his way to restore us. That he goes out of his way. I mean, he's the resurrected Lord, and he goes out of his way to let Peter know that he still loved him and that he still had a place in the kingdom. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, I think that's an interesting way. More than 500 that saw him at one time, and we don't have that. We don't have that record. We don't know when that was exactly. But he's saying, "Listen, there's you know there's still people around. If, you know, uh, the Roman Empire was a place where people traveled a lot. It's probably it's likely that Paul in his travels traveled about ten thousand miles in his travels. It was it wasn't unusual for people to travel a lot." And so basically what Paul said, listen, take a trip to Jerusalem. Look up some of these people. Talk to them about it. They saw Jesus alive. It's verifiable. You can, you can talk to people that saw the risen Christ. There's still people alive. Some have gone on to be with the Lord. They haven't all lived. But 
there's still people alive. If you want to, if you don't believe me, there's still people you can talk to that can convince you that he's alive. There's two times that crowds gathered, Matthew chapter 28. You know, Jesus had told them to go into Galilee ahead of him. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. So uh, it, it, this could be the, the crowd of 500 because as they were going to Galilee, uh, this has already gotten out. Hey, uh, Jesus has told us to go ahead to Galilee and uh, he's going to meet us. And so you can imagine there were people who said, you mean the Jesus that was crucified, that guy? That guy says he's going to show up in Galilee? And so there could have been people, there could have been people who didn't believe, uh, that just wanted to see. This could have been the crowd of 500. We, we not ex don't exactly know how big this crowd was. But it was a big enough crowd that some of them were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. End of the age. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, at the time of his ascension, Luke is writing this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given all orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, this is, right, this is just prior. He's talked of this time period, really, from the time of his ascension to the day of Pentecost this 10-day period of time. So we know that on the day of Pentecost, there was 120 on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. So, it's very, so they went to Jerusalem, and they're praying for 10 days. It's real, you know, I can see that it would be very easy to have a crowd of 500 that's down to 120 if you just ask them to pray for 10 days. You want to whittle a crown down? Tell them you're having a prayer meeting. I've, 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 it's, it's the easiest way to, to whittle a crowd down to, to the smallest size possible if, if you actually want to pray. Now, you can talk about praying. You can preach about praying. You can, you can teach about praying. You can tell people how they ought to pray. But if you really want to spend time in prayer, people are like, <sighs> we used to have all-night prayer meetings. I don't know why we did that, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. I think it's kind of like fasting. I'm not saying you shouldn't fast, but a lot of times people fast with the wrong motivation. They think that fasting twists God's arm. You know, that if I fast, then God owes me. Like, listen, God, I've been fasting, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast, and so now you owe me? But see, that's not, fasting is not about doing something for to God, some fasting is about doing something to us. As we sit in this room right now, we are being bombarded, you can't even recognize it, being bombarded by thousands of different kinds of radio waves, all, all kinds of frequencies, and cell phone waves, all kinds of stuff. It's, in this, it's present in this room. If you want to receive those, you have to have a device. 
transistor radio, if you could have, just with a simple transistor radio right now, you could pick up hundreds of stations that are present in this room. But you, you'd have to have a device. Fasting helps us tune our radio to God's frequency. And prayer, prayer does that too. So they're, they're praying, uh, but apparently, you know, uh, fasting will whittle the crowd and uh, praying will whittle the crowd. So possibly there. So they, but he appeared to 500 people. And he said, listen, if you want to go talk to him, there's people you can talk to. I can give you a list, Paul's saying. Then he appeared to James. James is the brother of Jesus. John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus had other brothers, and I'm not going to go into all of that right now, but there were other children of Mary and Joseph. Uh, the Catholic view is that Mary never had any children other than Jesus. She was a virgin until she died. Uh, that the children are the children of Joseph. They're half, they're half brothers of Joseph. I believe that these are actually the brothers and sisters of Jesus, that actually Mary and Joseph uh, had a family. Uh, but his brothers didn't believe in him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I mean, we can see at first, they, they went into Jesus when he began to teach and do miracles, and they, and, you know, in a sense, claimed to be the Messiah. They were like, hey, uh, Jesus, uh, we need to talk to you. Uh, we think you're crazy. Uh, then they believed that he was the Messiah. So what happened? I mean, what, what, what changed? What changed? that they believed that he was the Messiah. First, they think he's crazy. I mean, what it would it take for you to believe that your brother is God? Now, see, wouldn't it have really been fun if you were Jesus to appear in a room with your brothers and say boo to them? You know, I mean, you, you got to prank your brothers, right? Ha ha! I am God, and I'm not crazy. Gotcha! <laughs> I'm not saying he did that. But he probably did. He probably did. It might change your mind if you saw your brother die a gruesome death and then he appeared to you alive. It might cause you to realign your thinking, right? Verse 8, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul is this, this incredible transformation. He's an enemy. He's, he's fighting against probably his, his transformation from an anti-Christ, persecuting the church, doing everything he can to destroy the church, to a devout, committed follower of Christ who somewhere in the, in the A.D. 60s, probably along with Peter and James, is killed by Nero. And he dies for his faith. A committed enemy becomes a committed believer. That's tremendous evidence that what we believe is true. So why is this important? Why is it important that we believe in the resurrection? What is it about this story that's so, so critical? 
Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ was raised, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I mean, this is this is this is the power of the resurrection. This is the purpose of the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, then what he accomplished for us is real. If Jesus did not come back to life, we're wasting our time. You're still in your sins. I choose to believe <laughs> that Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death. And we have that confidence that because he did, that suffering Messiah took away our sins. And not only that, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he handed to us, he handed to us, invited us into sonship, into the family of God. What a great privilege. Amen.